Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James. Super excited to be here with you all. Thank you so much for coming through to the diner. What do you have today, folks? Maybe some eggs, Benedict, you old bougie bastard, you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whatever you need, my friends, come on through. I'm excited that you are here. Slide into the booth and let us hang out, my friends. So, I have a really exciting guest who's coming out in just a minute. His name is Gary Ware, and he is an awesome individual. He and I met on Instagram. He had the courage to hit the follow button. Mm, so bold. And I refollowed because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> that's not true. Some of your profiles are trash, and I'm not refollowing you. But the thing is, is I refollowed Gary, and I was super excited to have him in my world because he and I are improvisers, and I love of meeting my fellow improvisers out in the wild. He is the founder of Breakthrough Play and is a corporate facilitator, a keynote speaker, a certified coach, a self-proclaimed creative catalyst. He, his whole specialty is around the concept of play, and I can't wait to talk to him about it. He is, as I mentioned, a fellow improviser. He's had over 14 years of experience in the corporate world, his various leadership positions, and he has committed his life to this idea of play. And I think it's really amazing the way he uses applied improv to impact his audiences and his friends, <laughs> whether they know it or not. Uh, apparently, he has a propensity to just randomly do magic in the middle of a normal conversation. That's cool. I can sometimes not touch my nose when I want to. But I'm excited <laughs> to have him out here and his impressive self. My friends, let's bring him out right now. My guy, Gary Ware. What's happened, AJ's? Oh my gosh, that intro was amazing. Come on now, man. You gotta, we gotta bring you out with some fire. You, you bring exactly. Gotta bring it. (laughs) Can you be my hype person? Can I just bring you to every Zoom meeting and just have you intro me? Like that is amazing. Yeah, for sure. Especially Zoom meetings. There's nothing I love more than being someone's hype person on a Zoom meeting. <laughs> that's exactly why. Most of them are so boring. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's something that you could like maybe do like a Fiverr thing or, you know, you know, hey, look, I will hype you up in your Zoom meeting so that so that people, uh, you know, start the meeting on fire. I don't know. Yeah. But anyways, I'm hyped it. up. It's like it's like the it's like on hip hop albums. Like I'm I want to be that random white guy voice that comes in is like, did you even know that DJ Khaled or whatever? Like he's always exactly. got this lame white boy voice. Is like, don't mess with Rick Ross because he will. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm dating myself. I don't think they do that on hip hop albums anymore. But I'll date myself. I don't care. It's the best hip hop. So. <laughs> Gary, I'm pumped to be with you, my friend. Where are you joining us from today? Where in the country are you? I am the suburbs of San Diego, Spring Valley, California, to be exact. Love me. It's nice and sunny. Yeah, yeah, for sure. San Diego, special place, Uh, special place for sure. Incredible. Uh, That's uh, that's awesome. I'm in the opposite of San Diego. I'm in Minnesota, uh, and it was 35 degrees last night. So uh... is that that Celsius? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Celsius. So you got to you got to what you can multiply by two and then add thirty two. How do you do it? anyway? Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that yeah. uh, as far as as far as the degrees like thirty two. Like I, that seems like frozen to me. Yeah, it is. 32 is actually, um, for sure. Uh, hold the Elsa. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I love it. So you, are you, uh, are you a San Diego native? Are you a Cal, a Cali boy through and through? Compared to most, uh, I've been here since I was in, uh, since I was in kindergarten, my dad was in the Navy. Uh, San Diego's a big Navy port. And once he, once he got here, he was like, no, nope, we're not leaving. And so, yeah, compared to most people, San Diego is a transplant town. Uh, a lot of people do move here. Um, I did the opposite. I, I grew up here and then I left. And then I went, of all places, I went to LA. And, and that's where I went to university. And that's where I, like, I started my career. And that's where I met my wife. And then we came back to visit. And she was like, you left this beautiful oasis called San Diego? <laughs> Um, and then we ended up moving back. So here we are. There you go. There you go. What a bold adventure to travel three to four hours north, give or take traffic, Gary. Uh, <laughs> you renegade you. Uh, but actually, LA and San Diego, really, even though they are that close, they couldn't be more different. Uh, so <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Now, now, uh, Gary, I've had many a great late night meal on the West Coast. Typically, they come in the form of taco trucks or in and out because y'all don't really do diners like we do in the Northeast, um, and uh, which is where I'm from. And so, but I'm wondering, do you fancy yourself a late night meal? And if so, what is your late night guilty pleasure? Well, uh, <laughs> so I have two. Um, you, you hit the nail right on the head with... Uh, amazing mexican food because again mm -hmm. san diego again I, i'm i'm willing to put a stake in the ground and, and and make a claim that san diego has some of the best mexican food that you can find and so on a late night whim i love me mm -hmm. a carne asada burrito with just guacamole cheese and sour cream oh so good mm. so greasy uh it's so so amazing um and on the flip side of that I also love me a stack of pancakes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm here for all of that. And I would hope San Diego has great Mexican food. If you are that close and don't, that speaks way more to the unfortunate ignorance of our country. But fortunately, you do have very good uh, Mexican food down there. Uh, and, and I agree. There are – I mean, I will get into a fight with most people – for foods that I don't believe are better anywhere outside of New York City, because I'm very biased and very right. But uh, Mexican food is one I can't. Uh, I've had exceptional Mexican food out there, but uh, in New York, but I have not. Uh, it's always been better whenever I'm in California. So, uh, so I'll give you that. But here's what I here's what I love is that pancakes. I don't know. You actually don't know this, Gary. I start every single keynote of mine with how I eat pancakes. I eat pancakes in a very particular way. Um, I believe. So I'm really excited that we're talking about pancakes right now uh, because I'm into it. As a matter of fact, every thank you box that I send to a client that books me is a, a pancake mix and syrup. Uh, and, and that's just, so yeah, like pancakes are my jam. So here's my question for you. How do you eat your pancakes? All right. So, <laughs> and, and I, I get this for my mom because I, when I was a kid, this is how I would eat pancakes. And mm -hmm. then I still to the day. So like, 
Uh, the pancakes come, you know, I, I, I put the butter on each layer. Yes. Um, and then, uh, and then I cut them into squares because my mom <laughs> used to cut into squares for me, like literally a grid. And then I put the syrup on and then I go to town on my little square pieces of pancake. <laughs> That's how I eat my pancakes. I love this. Now, here's why this is this. Here's why this is great. Um, is that now, first off, I put, I, you know, you butter each layer. I was with you there. Then I syrup each layer. But you kind of do that in a certain way as well, because by cutting it open, you allow the syrup to get in. And so there's still proper soakage. And so mm -hmm. I respect this method. Yes, exactly. And that's the uh, the thing. Every bite needs to have that syrup. And, and you're right. If you don't syrup every layer, by the time you get to the bottom, you're just eating like just dough. Yeah, like, you're, you're cutting into a drier gradient of pancake and that's unacceptable. And I, and I'm all about the sauce. That's like, that's my jam. Like, yeah. I'm a saucy guy. So. I read that about you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. I am, I am also all about that sauce. Um, and uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Gary, you know, we were kind of instantly friends. Um, I was really excited that we, that, that thanks for reaching out on Instagram. Um, and that was a, a few years ago now. Um, and we finally got on a phone call or zoom call or whatever it was. Um, and it's just easy, man. I mean, talking to you is, uh, is, is like butter as long as let's stick, let's keep the theme throughout the whole show. Let's see if we can do it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so, uh, I'm just grateful that the world brought us together. Our friend Heather brought us together as well. And, uh, I love meeting a fellow improviser because, Improv is one of those skills that just makes you a better human, right? It makes you, and I know I'm biased, but I know I'm speaking to someone who agrees with me, so it's fine. But the it just makes you a better conversationalist. I rarely have better com bad conversations with fellow improvisers because even if you're not talking about anything, you're still building on something, and it's at least fun. And so it's it's a joy for sure. How did you how did you get into improv, Gary? It was accident. Uh, <laughs> it was it was one of those things where I I knew of improv sort of like mm -hmm. again I have seen whose line is it anyway uh, and then I didn't necessarily know that was like something that you could do and get better at. Um, however, when I was in my past life as a marketer, uh, working in the the corporate sector um, and trying to optimize every area of my life. Someone mentioned that improv would be a great way to improve your public speaking. Mm -hmm. I said, all right, cool. Sign me up. I, I, I don't consider myself a funny person, but, you know, whatever. you know, in in my like sort of naiveness, I, I again uh, and most people do this when you talk about like improv, they think like, oh, improv is all about trying to be funny. I was completely wrong, uh, but I was also wrong in that I just thought it was going to be this thing where you just sort of thrust it on stage. Uh, to my surprise, uh, when I walked in that theater on that Monday evening <laughs> and was met with those 15 other people just like myself, and when we played those games for two hours, I was completely mesmerized. I was present. I had so much joy in my heart. And, and you're right. Um, you can't not, like, you learn these improv games, there's not like a switch where you're like, all right, cool. I'm going to stop sort of yes ending people. I'm going to stop active listening. I'm going to stop contributing, you know, and building like you just, once you learn that and it's muscle memory, it's just who you are. Mm -hmm. And I've quickly found that. And I was hooked. 
Yeah. There's, there is something, there's a very addictive property to it. I think it's also the community that's formed, right? Like, I, I don't know if you've ever tried stand-up, but uh, I did stand-up for a long time, and there is no high like a stand-up high. But there is no low like a stand-up low. It is It gets dark very quickly. And, and with improv... There aren't, uh, there aren't the, I guess, like the the valleys. The valleys never get as low as they do sometimes with stand up because, you know, you're in it together. There's this beauty of of the team of the community. Like you said, you walked into this room and you have, you know, 15 sets of random ass eyes on you, and you're like, okay, I guess we're all about to get weird together, right? Like it's so, it is so funny. Like cool hats are not allowed. Um, and you just got to jump into the pool and figure out how to swim together. And it's awesome. Agreed. And it's so interesting because that first improv class that I took, I made some friends that we are still to this day, very close friends. And yeah. it's because we got weird together <laughs> in, in the improv pool, so to speak. And yeah, it's just one of those things when I started performing improv, you're absolutely right. And improv, because it's all made up, not all shows are going to be like bangers. Like you're going to have some crappy shows. However, because you have that community, you like it's it's not that it's not that bad. And also mm -hmm. because of the rules of improvisation, we actually had a perfect show because there's no mistakes in improv. Uh, anyways, but but yeah, it's one of those things where we come off them, it just didn't feel right. Like, all right, maybe, you know, we tried to do some stuff and it just didn't land. Uh, and we come off and we're like, eh. But then we're like, all right, cool. What were the good things about the show? Five things. And then we go through that and we're like, actually, it was a good show then. Or <laughs> to like, you know, in your head as a performer, thinking like, oh man, I could have done better with this or that and the other. And then you go out for the audience. So this is the thing that I tell people the difference between an improv audience and a stand-up audience is that when you go to see stand-up comedy, because in the nature of it, the person is supposed to make you laugh. So most people are like, all right, make me laugh. They're like, they're there. Like, all right, make it happen. <laughs> they're back, judging yeah. you. <laughs> but improv is the complete opposite where the audience is like, what you, you have no script. You're going to make this up. Mm -hmm. And then we say anything that is coherent. That is somewhat like a sentence or whatever. They're like, Oh my gosh. So I would have people come up to me and say, that was an amazing show. And in my head, I'm like, did you watch the same show I did? Like that I was part of? Because I didn't think that was good at all. But again, in the world of improv, I was like, oh, well, well, thank you. And and what did you like about it? Again, so yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is, uh, it is, it is awesome. And I think that's also, that's a lesson that I in general need in my life, right? Is like, don't walk off stage and jump into the critique, the critique pool. Um, but I'm, but I'm so good at it, Gary. I'm so good at swimming around in that, in that beautiful shame hole that I create. And, uh, but I don't, uh, right. And, and so, but so I try not to, I should say, I actually had a, a previous partner that told me, I don't want you to tell me anything bad about your speech for two days. And then after two days, you can rip into yourself all you want. And I promise I will listen. And you know what? She was right. And fine. Everything's fine. Um, and But it's, it truly is like you walk up that stage and the audience is like, that was incredible. Right. Because an improv audience, they're not sitting there with expectations. They're actually sitting there with fear of like, oh, my gosh, can they do this? And once you start to make them laugh, then they sit back, not like a stand up audience with judgment. They sit back because their shoulders are down like, OK, 
they got it. We're fine. It's like, it's kind of like that moment where the plane's taken off where you're like, does the pilot got it? Does the pilot got it? Okay, they got it. We're good. <laughs> oh, and so to that point, in San Diego, because the way that we take off, sometimes we take off towards the buildings. Yeah. And then, and then we're like, is this going to be the time when it doesn't work? Is this going to be the time that it doesn't work? It, uh, it worked. That's how I feel when I go on stage doing improv. I'm like, is this going to be the one time where we completely bomb and the audience throws tomatoes at us? Yeah. No, it didn't. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. And you're right. We just sort of ease into it. Yeah. Gary, I'd be curious to know what are, uh, you know, I know that you teach improv as well, or you, you or you, and you use improv to teach uh, various lessons and, and things like that. But I'm curious for you personally, not even necessarily what you teach others, for you personally, what did improv teach you? Wow, improv taught me so much. Uh, actually, you should ask my wife because she's the one who, who first noticed it. Um, right. we'll get her in here. No. <laughs> no. Uh, so the, the big thing was listening. Mm -hmm. I thought I was a good listener. I seriously thought I was a good listener, but I learned quickly in improv that most of us only listen just enough to like sort of form our opinion or to like sort of think of the next thing that we're going to say. We don't listen to the whole thing with the intent to understand. And yeah. so like that was a big thing for me. The other thing with, with improv that taught me is about failure. Uh, again, I came at this um, not having any theater background or anything like that. I and came from a very high stress um, sort of uh, marketing you know, agency world where if you make a mistake, that could be the end of your career. And, <laughs> and so like I didn't want to make mistakes. I saw mistakes as like doomsday instead of mistakes as a learning opportunity, you know, and 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 yes, on paper, you know, we can say, you know, everyone quotes Thomas Edison of like, oh, I didn't fail. I just found a thousand ways that didn't work. Mm. Easier said than done, right? Yeah. Because of that shame <laughs> pool, you know, that, you know, uh, we, we, we have this negativity bias as humans. Makes sense. It keeps us alive, whatever. Uh, but um, until you practice it in low stakes environments like in improv, you know, you can't help but to like criticize yourself. So, yeah, improv did help me to realize like, hey, you know what? that you're not a failure gary mm -hmm. that idea that you had maybe failed but that's okay what can we learn from that so that we can make it better yeah so those i i think are, are the are the big ones and actually uh just the whole thing about joy you know uh i talk about happiness and and uh joy as they're similar but they're different happiness is can be very fleeting happiness is very circumstantial like i got a new car it made me happy mm -hmm. um but you know that same new car you know in a, in a few months is not gonna that your happiness level is going to start to deplete the moment it walks off the lot uh and you stop smelling that new car smell however however joy is something that comes from within that takes you know it takes work uh you know to like sort of Oh wow, this is like something that is very intrinsic. And doing improv helped me start to cultivate that because uh, <laughs> when you're learning improv, it could be awkward. But mm -hmm. to to like to like consciously look for the good. When I would take these classes, it would be very interesting because I would be Mr. Critical and the, the instructor or the coach, instead of going to the critical, they first went to what do we enjoy about that? And I'm like, enjoy what? We enjoyed that? <laughs> and so like forced me to like think of like 
oh yeah, what did I enjoy about that? What, yeah, what made me feel good? And so again, that became more of a habit that I started looking for the joy. Um, and it's not perfect, <laughs> but but it's something that I personally got from from my uh, work in improv. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I also am now learning that you and I had different improv teachers. Uh, <laughs> San didn't... Diego. San, San Diego. Diego. That's what San I have to Diego. say. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, my improv teachers would be like, okay, everybody, that was funny. Now here's the list of things that we need to work on. And and that's fine. I mean, I think, I think that's what I in the moment wanted, right? Like I'm not in the moment I thought about it is like, I'm not here in New York city, uh, taking improv classes at the upright citizens brigade theater because I want to pat on the back, right? Like I'm here because I'm gunning for something, right? Whether it's Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show, some sort of commercial or wh whatever, right? Um, and, and so I was like, no, this is it. Yeah, rake me over the coals. And I think there's also something that I missed because of that as well, both because of my desire to only hear and, and pattern to only hear the negative, um, but then also to only want that is also interesting because in hindsight, I freaking love improv and it brings me a lot of joy and it brought me a lot of community. But in the moment in those classes, I don't know if joy was what I was experiencing. And therefore, I don't know if my teachers, then the people who would potentially be inviting me to be on a team or audition for teams and stuff like that. I don't know if they saw that I really loved it also. And that could have been a really beautiful emotion to have swam in, <laughs> in hindsight. And I guess, I, yeah. I'll apply that to my bigger life as well. You know, I'm someone who uh, I'm someone who has a bit of anxiety um, and is is working on that. And, uh, and and so joy is sometimes also fleeting because I'm like, well, what's coming next and what's happening after that? And where are we going then? And who's going to decide that? Um, right. And so um, I'm able to spin pretty quickly into, OK, great. But what's next? And and I have a, a, a yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm able to do that. I'm wondering, you, you know, you mentioned that, you know, joy is, a, is still a process for you. Even what what did that look like even before improv? What kind of patterns were you in? How did you talk to yourself and, and things like that? Yeah, I was that critical person, just like you of like. All right, what did I do wrong? Like, let's list all the things because I, so I went to uh, university, the Art Institute of California, Los Angeles in, in beautiful Santa Monica. And- But actually. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it, it, and it was hard. It was very hard where that was, that was the thing. Like everything we did got like ripped to shreds. Mm -hmm. As in like, you will get better after we rip you apart and we will build you back up. So, so I, that was like my pattern of, all right, you know, this sucks, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, and I just thought that's just how everything was. Um, and, you know, I too, I think also as I'm learning about uh, my ADHD superpower, I realized that people that have ADHD tends to be more critical of themselves because of, um, you know, the environment that they're in when they're, um, around so many sort of uh, neuronormal type people, you know, that don't have these complexities uh, with their brains. And so they tend to judge themselves a bit more. And so that like was my thing of, because I honestly wasn't diagnosed with ADHD, um, even though like I was like, oh, something's kind of different until like way <laughs> after college. Um, mm -hmm. And so I spent a good deal of my life like judging myself against everyone else. I'm like, why is this so freaking hard uh, for me and not for this person? 
or if I want to be able to like be able to, you know, do this, come on, Gary, you know, so I beat myself up all, all the time. And so um, that was like my default. And then to jump into an improv class and that wasn't the default, it was a complete pattern interrupt. Now, don't get me wrong, there was that sort of tough criticism. Um, and then the classes that I took, they intentionally, because in San Diego, we're not like Chicago or LA or New York, where people who take an improv class are trying to get on something. Uh, they're just like, <laughs> most of the time, people that take an improv class probably take level one and two, and then that's that's their, their learning bucket list, check, complete. Um, and so as a way to like, keep people coming to classes they didn't want to be too hard on them um so they like all right cool you know this is play is like is like um you know uh working with kindergartners and they're like oh wow you're actually doing something and then by the time you get to like level three level four level five you know there's still that sort of um sort of positivity but then there's more of that critique uh but by then you've already drank the improv kool-aid and you're pretty like you're in the church uh, so to speak, the cult of improv. Um, so like, you know, is different. But for me, going back to the the pattern, to hear someone not by default criticize me was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially coming from a grueling uh, arts program, right? I mean, that's the notorious art, art, all art schools are, are like that. Uh, and, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I can only imagine, I mean, that's your normal thing. It's also when you, when you talk to an athlete and like a stereotypical football coach, right? Or you talk to someone in the military and a typical uh, a lieutenant or sergeant or whoever, right? Um, whoever their leadership figure might be, right? There's that, that idea of like, we're going to start with critiques first each time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it is a complete flip in our brains to all of a sudden hear positive first. You know, I think about that even now as I'm uh, even now as I'm raising a child and, and he's about to be five months old when we're recording this. And, uh, and that's really exciting. And so we're not even at the place necessarily where discipline is happening right at all. He's still kind of like a football. Um, but, uh, but still, you know, as it gets a little bit older thinking about like, okay, James, you were trained by your parents in the beautiful language of passive aggression. <laughs> how, <laughs> how are you going to try to not lead with passive aggression when you have to have harder conversations with your child and i i know that there's going to be some moments where i'm i'm still going to leave with passive aggression because it's instinctual at this point it's trained um but you know trying to make sure that i don't do it as much and or talking about it afterwards I'm like hey i could have handled that better i think it's going to be important um, but like like you said our brains are wired in a certain way um and I really appreciate the way that you were talking about how your brain is wired as a, a fellow individual with ADHD. It is fascinating to learn about that later in life. I think, I think we are similarly aged. I'm 38. I'm 41. So 41. Yes. Great. Close yeah, enough. Close we both enough. had AOL screen names. Um, exactly. And so, <laughs> um, and so uh, but like, you know, when we were growing up, there wasn't like ADHD. We was, it wasn't even called ADHD back then. Like I remember when it was called ADD, right? <laughs> and and it wasn't very popular. Like uh, students weren't being medicated nearly as much. We kind of like were graduating as that was really starting to get picked up, especially in K-12 schools. And so uh, I was never diagnosed with ADHD until a little bit later as well. And 
you're right. You do beat yourself up. I'm wondering for you with your ADHD, what was it like to learn that diagnosis? Or was it something that you're kind of like, eh, I knew it. I just wanted to prove it. Like, or was that a, or was that a moment for you? To be honest, it, uh, uh, after the test, so, so it, talk about like waves of emotions, uh, that test, that, uh, that grueling battery of, of things was like the worst day of my life because it was basically in order to prove that, all right, you indeed have ADHD. We want to prove it. So like I had to do all these things and not only did I have ADHD, uh, but I'm also dyslexic. That's pretty common, um, you know, to have people that are both. And so I went through at least three or four hours worth of tests. And afterwards I felt completely like stupid. Like I'm like, all right, I don't, you know, great. Uh, if you wanted me to feel stupid, you win, doctor. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he spent a week sort of going through everything. And then he sort of called me back. All right, results are in, Gary. You are ADHD. You know, you, you are dyslexic. Uh, but one of the things about that was that it was freeing in a way because I realized that, you know, it, it was confirmation of like, all right, I knew something was a little bit off, but I didn't know. And again, at the time when I got diagnosed, uh, so I was like maybe in my 20s and I'm like, you know, 40 something. So it was, it's been a while. It still wasn't as widely talked about as it is now. So there, you know, I was still searching for strategies of like, all right, so how do I deal with that? You know, and then, you know, I was introduced to medication. And for me, medication was like getting a pair of glasses where all of a sudden I saw life in HD uh, because for the first time, I was able to control my impulses uh, for the first time. I was able to sit down and, and do work that, uh, you know, that I'm not necessarily excited about, but I'm not sort of fidgeting or doing things because this is the paradox with ADHD is that you can go through situations where you're like, oh my gosh, it's like pulling teeth. But then if you're excited about it, you could just dive in and hyper-focus. So like it's, it's a paradox, but to be able to just be like, oh, I have to do invoices. I'm doing invoices. Look at me. Like, it was just like a new thing for me. And so, um, you know, it, it was great uh, to know that one, I'm not broken. Um, right. And then it wasn't for years <laughs> until like, I realized that not only are you not broken, Gary, but like, this is actually a superpower. Um, yeah. You know, there are things that people with ADHD have um, that, um, you know, people who aren't wired that way, you know, wish that they could have. Uh, and so, so it took me a while to like embrace it and be like, yeah, you know, for, for a long time, it was still like that thing I really didn't talk about of like, I'm like, well, at least now I have some medication, I have some stuff. So, because the reason why I like, I wanted to get diagnosed because I seriously thought I was going to just get fired from all, all jobs because at this point I'm out of college and all that structure of school was gone. And so like, I had like blank check of like you do what you need to do and i was getting my work done but i was putting more stress on myself because of the like oh, i don't want to do this i want to do this uh oh deadline <laughs> got it check yes <laughs> or i found myself like overworking myself just to keep up and so i was like all right i'm gonna get found out that's you know something's up with gary and he's i'm gonna get fired and i don't want to get fired because uh i got student loans to pay and and uh i'm getting married soon all this other stuff so it was great to find out that there was something uh, that wasn't wrong with me. It's just how I'm wired. Um, and then as I learned more and more about it, I realized like, oh, wow, this actually does give me some cool, cool powers that most people wish they had.
It is fascinating that uh, yeah, people with ADHD are now stepping into this. And like, I don't know when people with ADHD started calling it a superpower, but I feel like, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, because I've had it for so long. I feel like I've heard the tumor, ADHD superpowered this year. Maybe it's been something that's been happening for years, and that's fine. I'm just late on the, I'll late on the party. But I feel like leaning into this idea of ADHD superpowers is, first off, it's badass. And so I'm here for that. Um, and I agree that there are ways that our brains function that are actually really cool that modern day schooling don't reward right? Or don't celebrate or would never, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, for me, emotional intelligence was never something that I was taught that I had or that mattered um, back in the day. And now all of a sudden people are like, we need to hire people with emotional intelligence. And I'm like, oh, good, I'm hireable. And uh, it's, it, it is fascinating. But here's the moment for me when I found out that I had ADHD and I had kind of known it. And so it was more like a confirmation of, of sorts for me. And then I was like, okay, well, do I want to take medication? I had a problem with taking it. And I, there was still this after years of what's wrong with you, James? Why can't you focus like these other people can? Why can't you keep up? Why are you finishing your test late? Um, and stuff like that. You need to get your shit together, right? Like that was the story that I told myself over and over again. It was like, get it together, right? It was, it was not a superpower. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very much the thing that made me different and the thing that you know, impacted my grades and the thing that uh, you know, made me forget things or, or whatnot, right? Not be as present sometimes with somebody. And, and so I still have this mentality of like, you just need to get it together. Like you need to work harder. You need to figure it out. And so medication wasn't necessarily like, oh, great. I take this pill. I feel better. And I'm the person I think I am um, or I know to be. Instead, it was like, oh, now you need to take this pill, bro. Cool. This is a good step for you. Really? You proud of yourself? Um, and there, there was shame in that idea of like, cool, now I have to take a pill for every day for the rest of my life to be closer to quote unquote normal or functioning. Um, and that that was really hard for me. Um, and so I, I don't know if you had that experience as well, or if you've come in and out of your relationship with medication, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I just didn't jump in. I was like, yay pills. Let's go. Yeah. For me, um, there was a lot of shame at first of like, oh, wow. Uh, like I, I agree. Like I'm cheating. Like, all right, here we go. Um, and then it, through therapy, so like it was, it was a mix. Like I, I started doing therapy, uh, to learn techniques because they said, this is not like a, a cure pill, like Gary, like you're going to take this and it's going to allow you to sort of get the dopamine level so that you can function like everyone else because you have a deficit of dopamine production. That's why you do the things that you do. And, but then I would, I, I agree. I like, I felt like, uh Oh, I'm doing something wrong because I have to take this. Pill. So I really did not tell anyone. Like it was just like my, my little secret, like, and take my pill. Uh, but then going through therapy and learning strategies, because that was the other thing, because, um, you know, they said, you're not going to just magically just be a normal person. You need to learn some strategies like time management strategies. You need to learn some of these other strategies. Um, and so then I would have a thing where because of the, the, the pill, uh, and I was learning these strategies. I'm like, Oh, I don't, I think I got this ADHD thing solved. I'm good. And then I, I would go like on a holiday uh, from 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 medication, and then I would quickly realize I'm like, oh, 
uh-oh, some of those things came back. Uh, but I didn't have to work as hard because I'd learned some strategies, but it was still there. And that that sort of dissonance of like, oh, hmm. Like in the beginning, it was really challenging for me to like realize like this pill helped me. And when I don't take the pill, some of those things come back. Mm. And this is what I'm going to be taking for a, forever. Like it, it was just really like it was hard for me to grasp. And so then, you know, again, through therapy, I was like realizing, well, is it like it was trying to come to like grips of because of our conditioning, we have been fed the story that these behaviors that we have are inherently bad. Mm -hmm. And and so by me having them, then therefore I'm a bad person because I do these things when I should be able to control them. So it was it took a long time for me to come to uh, realize that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just how I'm wired. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I really appreciate the way that you framed that. Uh, thanks for making me feel more normal, too. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. I appreciate that. Got you. Got you. So, uh, yeah. And it's interesting to bring it back to improv. There was part of me that was worried that I wasn't going to be as good of an improviser if I slowed my brain down or focused my brain up. And also the kind of improv that I was doing uh, primarily, especially, you know, back when I was, when I, you know, I tried medicine for a few months, I was at Adderall for a few months. Um, and, uh, you know, I was on a team called North coast or am I still on a team called North coast? And we incorporate freestyle rapping into long form improv. And so every single show that you see of ours, it's uh, you know, we get one suggestion uh, at the top of a show and then we create a 45 minute hip hop on the spot with beatboxers and stuff like that. And it's, it's a lot of fun, but the brain's gotta be cooking. Um, and, uh, and so there's part of me that was like, I don't, I don't want to risk slowing the brain down or, or whatnot. Right? Like I would, I would just write these stories of like, I'm going to change as a performer. Um, and there's part of me that's like, actually it probably would have made you even better um, because you probably, maybe you would have stayed on game or on pattern a little bit longer. Maybe you would have remembered that fun detail that happened a little bit earlier in the scene. You could have called it back. Right. And so um, it's fascinating the way, these points of our lives intersect and we don't even really recognize it. Uh, and, but I also always appreciated improv for that reason. Cause it was, it was a space that made me feel normal. It was like, I'm supposed to be all over the place here. Um, right. Like it's like a focused, a focused chaos almost sometimes on stage with improv. And uh, it played into my suit. I think it's the same reason why I love New York city so much. I was like, I can do anything. This is great. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that was the moment for me me um and so i love this because you took improv and have now turned it into a teaching tool you had this professional career in marketing and then you transition into now being a full-time facilitator speaker consultant using improv comedy so you like you really drank the kool-aid gary like you were in there i drank the kool-aid also but like you're like i'm taking it and i'm using the kool-aid um and bringing other people into this as you wisely put it the cult of improv and so <laughs> uh but you know, i'm wondering how did that when did that transition happen how did it happen when did you go from you know full-time 401k wielding benefits job having to like i'm gonna try this yeah, uh, I, in a perfect world, it would have been a great transition where I, you know, had this as like a side hustle and a hobby. And then I got to the point where I was making enough money doing it. And I said, oh, you know what? Goodbye, corporate career. I'm going to take the leap into this improv. 
actually, no. It came out of desperation uh, because this was my hobby. Um, I did this very selfishly for myself. And as I learned it, I did. I took those learnings for the team that I was working with at the time. Um, and uh, what it ended up happening, because I thought my career trajectory was marketing. Um, and if you've ever played The Sims, uh, I may be dating myself, but like when you're on The Sims and you get a career, it tells you <laughs> the next steps in your career. So I was like, oh, I went from like a, a marketing analyst to a creative guy, like, oh, business owner. And so I, I started my own um, uh, agency uh, with uh, two other co-founders. And I was like, I'm going to change the world of agency life. Um, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, make it so it's more meaningful. And we're not burning people out. I'm learning these amazing, um, you know, people skills using improv. I'm going to bring this stuff in and I'm going to keep honing these skills in these free events that I'm doing on the side in my performances. Um, and because I own the business, this is going to afford me the ability to do this feel good work. Um, and I would go and uh, do leave these retreats where I don't charge as much just because I just wanted to break even, but I just wanted to, again, share my, my passion for this with other people and, and learning about play. Well, that quickly came to an end uh, where my business partner, um, uh, so he, he ran out one of our other business partners and it was just me and him running the business. And then I came back from a retreat uh, it was my, uh, birthday week. Um, and you know, I was doing a retreat in Nicaragua. I came back that Monday. I thought was a normal sort of check-in with my business partner come to find out. No, he had different plans and he was like, I don't think we should, you know, be working together anymore. Here's your sort of buyout check. And I oh. was quickly without a job. Uh, uh, and two hours after that meeting, we found out that our landlord uh, is selling the house that we had been renting. Um, and so we had about 40 days to vacate the premises, find another place. My wife wasn't working because my son at the time was almost one. Um, and, and I was scrambling to be like, oh crap, uh, what do I do? And I think this is where everything sort of comes together. Like the ADHD part, like, you know, the improv and stuff like this. Because I think a normal person, to be honest, would have just said, let me just go get another job. <laughs> you know, this didn't work. You're skilled in marketing. Uh, how about you just go find another marketing job? I'm pretty sure you can find one. Um, and you should probably do it quick because you can't get another place to live, um, you know, without a job. Uh, so, you know, you have 30 days to do that. No, I was like, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go full in on this facilitation thing. And my wife... Uh, you know, she's not an improviser, but she, I, I feel like she embraces some of the improv spirit. She had my back and she was like, yeah, I think you should do this. It, it you know, it brings you a lot of joy. I, I see that in you. Um, and so we had to figure this out. So we, uh, did the crazy thing uh, of selling all of our stuff. Um, and we, <laughs> we moved in with my parents, um, uh, which they selfishly was cool for they were down for that because they wanted to spend more time with their grandkid so uh you know it was a win-win um and then i was on my way to figuring this out of how how do i make this work uh, as, as far as offering these these workshops using applied improvisation and what i call purposeful play to organizations to help them you know solve challenges and uh it you know the first two years uh, you know, was exciting, uh, but scary. 
And I thought I was figuring it out. And then COVID hit uh, uh, on year three, <laughs> uh, where uh, it was a screeching halt. And then I had to sort of reinvent myself again. So, uh, but I don't regret it at all. That's the main thing. I, I, I We wouldn't be here having this conversation um, had I right. gone down a different path. Um, but this came out of sort of desperation of like, what do I do next? And then um, I guess as an improviser, it's like, oh, well, let's just end this. I'm, I'm already, you know, you know what they say in those events, you need to find something that you would do regardless if you got paid for. Yep. And I was like, well, I'm not getting paid for this. So I guess, and I love it. So I guess this is it. So maybe I just need to figure out how to get paid for it. So here we are. Yeah. And that's the switch that so many people can't make, right? That switch of like, I really love this. Could I get paid for it? But I think also, Gary, we know that not every hobby is meant to become something with a paycheck. Cause, and sometimes when you, when you get paid for it, it ruins it. Right. Like, Great. I mean, I, like I love photography. Um, it's a, it's a, one of my favorite hobbies and I've shot a couple of weddings. I did headshots back in the day. And every time I got paid for it, I was like, this is terrible. But I like now, so now I just shoot, I just shoot for fun um, and, and shoot for free and, and shoot what I want to shoot. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and it really is, it's a release for me. But when I got paid for it, it was terrible. And, and I was also a worse photographer at, you know, in those moments because of it. And that moment that you're talking about of uh, uh, that exact moment that people always tell you what to do it's like, well, just find something that you love and just keep doing it. All right. Well, I got to figure out how to get paid for it. That's a tough thing because oftentimes that leap of I'm having a lot of fun to, I need to get asked money to do this. What is my value? How much is Gary worth for an hour of Gary's time. Like those are things that make us feel, make me feel super self-conscious, right? When I started speaking, I was like, I don't know, you could buy me a sandwich, um, right? <laughs> and like, that was, that's what I was happily getting paid for because I just wanted to be on the stage. And it is, it's a tough transition to finally be like, no, this is what I'm worth. And, and I'm going to try to convince people that this is what I'm worth now because I know I'm going to bring value to them. That's way easier said than done. Would you agree? A hundred and ten percent. And and you bring up an amazing point about that transition because uh, as I've been studying play, um, you know, play is something that you would do, uh, you know, regardless if you got paid. But like the act of doing it brings you joy um, more so than the outcome of whatever that activity is. Like again, mm -hmm. photography and stuff like that. This is great. You know, you're you're capturing you know all these moments and stuff like that and maybe some are great maybe some are not but again you're doing it and then the moment you bring in extrinsic rewards mm -hmm. money you know you know recognition all these other things it starts to diminish your intrinsic motivation for doing it and it, it starts to shift things and yeah. i knew that going into it that this may happen and um and i am so grateful to my parents one that um didn't think i was crazy and uh you know said no you better boy you better go get a regular job uh you know and allowed <laughs> us to to move in because if if i didn't have that and i still had um you know you know we had to find another place to live and have to pay like you know all that rent i don't think i would have kept it as pure as i did because mm -hmm. you're right when you have to make money for something uh, some people in, in some professions, it, it, it's, it, it works. I hear these stories about, you know, um, you know, 
how I made it work and, and this, that, and the other. But I feel like in some of these things, it, it like it will make you do things that maybe aren't the most ethical, um, maybe is not going to be um, the best product, again, because you have to get money for it. And there's a lot of pressure for it. And so because I didn't have, I we removed the time pressure, removed the money pressure. Um, and it, it gave me the runway to figure this out and, and, and like fail at it. Cause I've failed a lot at it. Yeah. And you're right. Trying to figure out how much to charge a client for an event where I did that same event for, yeah, like for dinner, like, you know, mm -hmm. like now I, I have to put like a dollar, like it's so hard. And so, and, and you're absolutely right. Not all hobbies can translate into, um, into a pain career. And, and that's, I've changed my stance on, on these situations. Um, and, and now when people ask me about that, I say, find a job that will finance you to do the things that bring you joy. Mm. Yeah. I like that a lot. Uh, I like that a lot for sure. Because when we think of something like a work-life balance, work-life balance is not just, and most people think it is, my work sucks, so I don't have work-life balance. No, it turns out like what you're doing in the life side of work-life balance also matters. And if you're just wasting your time and, and not doing things that bring you joy with the moments you have – then no, you're going to naturally blame it on work because work is the easy thing. Because if it's not work's fault, that means it's your fault. And so let's blame work, right? But with those moments that you have, I think a lot of people get in these patterns of like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come home from work and I'm going to decompress and I'm going to watch my shows and I'm going to read a book and then I'm going to make dinner and I'll, you know, I'll go to bed. Or, right, I'm going to come home and take care of the kids and make dinner and go to bed. And we get in these rhythms, but you have to insert – these pieces of joy for yourself, whether it is an improv class or uh, I don't know, you want to go throw some pottery or you want to go kickball league, whatever it is, like you have to put things on your calendar that bring you joy. Um, but we get stuck in these patterns and, and, and yeah, we, we don't. So I love what you said, find a, find a job that will finance things that you love. That's brilliantly put. Yeah. Agreed. And you bring up a good point about joy and that's what I talk about. Like, joy actually takes work uh you have to make sacrifices to have that happen because again if you want a quick hit yeah you know go buy yourself something or 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 yeah like maybe go watch that show and like you will get happiness but then it like it depletes uh but joy mm -hmm. is something that is like this internal like sort of pilot light and you can sort of turn it up but it requires you to actually commit to something to do something to put it on your calendar um and sometimes you're right. People feel guilty about doing those things. But yeah. I, what I, um, so in, uh, I, I have a newer uh, workshop slash talk that I do. And I talk about um, using play as a way to help you overcome burnout. Because most people, you know, they, um, you know, they pour themselves into their work and they expect their work to return the favor. Mm -hmm. Turns out it doesn't. You need to do some things that are going to fill your cup um, so that you can, um, you know, bring the best version of yourself. And not all things are created equal. You can't, you know, just go and binge watch Netflix and expect to, like, be revitalized as much as maybe, you know, if 
if pottery is your jam, setting aside time to do pottery. And so it's one of those things that, again, takes commitment. It takes scheduling. And, and some people hate that. And that maybe that's why they have resistance to it. Because again, when, when we were younger, we did those things. We didn't have to schedule. I didn't have to schedule my fun time and play time. You're right. But guess what? Your life wasn't as um, hectic as it is now. So, hey, get over yourself, buddy. And, uh, you know, and, and put some time and some effort into it and, and watch what happens. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You will always get more joy out of setting up a Ninja Warrior training camp in your backyard and playing with it than you will watching it. Uh, right. <laughs> let's, get a zip, let's get a zip line between those two trees in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. It's funny because you mentioned this phrase, get over yourself, which I love, use frequently, uh, much to many people's chagrin. But uh, <laughs> the, the concept of adulting is, uh, is often needs to be sprinkled with a lot of get over yourself. But as, a, as we get older, we become increasingly aware of the value of time. Then what we do with that time is often because of what we're told adults are supposed to be, we're like, well, I got to fill it in with obligations, right? Like, no, I can't hang out this weekend. We got to clean the garage. And now, first off, I know that my motives are very much people driven, right? I'm a two on the Enneagram. I'm, a, I'm an extrovert through and through. And so when someone's like, no, I don't want to hang out with you. I want to clean the garage. I don't read that as, oh, you're someone who that's going to bring joy. I read it as, oh, cool, you hate me, but that's fine. And I need to make sure that I honor people's truths. That's a whole nother topic, Gary. But the thing is, is that we as adults often forget to play because of these things that we think we are supposed to do. There are things of like, I'm an adult now, so I am supposed to blank. Whatever it is, I am a parent now, so I am supposed to blank. I am married now, so I'm supposed to blank, right? Like, I hate the phrase, happy wife, happy life. That phrase is bullshit, right? Don't get me wrong. I want Tina to be very happy, and I bust my ass to make sure that she is happy. But that doesn't make my life happy. Right. I also need to do things for me. I also need to find play. And so, Gary, why is it go a little bit deeper into this idea of why is it hard for adults to bring back the word of play in general into their lives and actually do it? Well, first and foremost, most if you ask any adult, what's your definition of play? What does play mean to you? Uh, a lot of times it's, uh, oh, it's things the kids do. It's a frivolous activity. It's goofing off. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if that's your definition of play and you value like responsibility and stuff like that, why would you play? And, like it is not an intelligent thing if that is your definition. Yeah. And so the first thing is we have the wrong definition for play. Uh, two, um, <laughs> you know, for, for adults, it's the obligation. Mm -hmm. They feel their their um thing up with so much obligation that there's no space for it um and this is the other thing too sometimes like because of the way that we look at things we think things have to i'm cleaning the garage this has to suck like it's just how we have it and you know what to some people it's like yeah it does have to suck like or does it like it can be a sucky thing that you have to do 
but do you have to be angry doing it? But again, <laughs> we have sometimes we have to be right, and I and I get it. And to those people, I'm like, hey, that's your that's your thing. Um, I'll put that aside uh, about like how you can make mundane things fun, like Mary Poppins. It, just go watch Mary Poppins. She she would take care of that for you. But the it. main thing, <laughs> the main thing for for adults is that we feel guilty. Things like guilt is a barrier to play. Stress mm. is a barrier to play. We have things in our life that are actually going to like keep us from actually playing because it activates the cortisol, it acti activates the adrenaline, it, it turns off the creative functions of our brain, and we're not going to play. And so that's why we have to be mindful in it and have intention so that we can get in that state of play, the playfulness. Gary, I just wrote that down. Guilt is a barrier to play. I don't know who needs to hear that, but I know it's me. And <laughs> that is just, uh, that's brilliantly put. Yes, stress is a barrier to play as well. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> you know, you bring up Mary Poppins and it actually reminds me of a quick story. My, uh, <laughs> this, this winter, we just, we just moved into this house in, uh, in Minneapolis or, or St. Paul, I should say. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and so this winter, believe it or not, it snowed in Minnesota. I know that's the mind blowing part of the story, but uh, so it snowed. And when, when my wife was growing up, her mom and dad figured out a way to make shoveling the, the driveway, this extremely fun activity. And she just like loves it. She has memories of shoveling the driveway and how much fun they had. My parents did not create the same experience and it was very much an obligation. And so we're hanging out and uh, and 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 uh, my wife has is very pregnant at this point, but would love to go out and do some light shoveling and just help out because she's excited about it. And the neighborhood kids come over and know that we are pregnant, and they shovel our pathways and everything around, which is so sweet. But in that moment, Tina was sad because she was like. They took my play away. <laughs> it's so, it's just so funny. Like what one person's obligation is could be somebody else's version of play. And it's all about what angle you attacked it at. And that is, uh, yeah, uh, that's brilliant, man. Yeah. Brilliant. Change the way you look at things. The things you look at change. That's just, that's just how it is. Um, and I didn't create that, uh, that quote, but it's true. Yeah. So Gary, what, I mean, to just be like, okay, we need to play. Sounds good. I'll go block an hour on my calendar, Martha. I can't make it on Thursday anymore, right? Like that, that's not necessarily, It's. It, I wish it was that easy, right? Just like work-life balance. Like, well, I'm just going to have one hour on my calendar and hold it sacred. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Maybe it works for some people. Shout out to you all if it does. But ultimately, it's a Band-Aid over a bigger wound. And so if we're going to get a little bit deeper into the idea of, inserting play into our lives as grown ass humans. What does that start like? Yeah, first and foremost, um, it's all about the definition. Uh, we need to get over ourselves and realize that we can only go as hard as we allow ourselves to recover. Mm -hmm. So we need to stop um, using overwork as a badge of honor because most of the reason most of the time people like don't play is because they feel like, hey, uh, my value as a human, as a person, is in the hours that I put in my job. Mm -hmm. And that is not true. And quick story, uh, not to be a Debbie Downer, uh, but I've, like in my, so you know, especially later in my life, I've met many, uh, many friends 
who have lost their lives very sudden, you know, mm -hmm. out of the blue. And they, you know, wanted to play, but they were working. And, the, you know, they thought the day will come when they would get to play, you know, retirement, whatever that is. And their life was cut way too soon. And so you have no idea, like, you know, when that is going to come. So if you're sort of delaying joy for some other thing, you're going to be, you know, it, you're going to be one of those people. Uh, I believe her name is Bronnie Ware. Uh, she has the same last name as me. And she was a hospice nurse. And she talked about the five regrets of the dying. So these are the people who, you know, don't have much time left. And she talked to them. And and a lot of times uh, they had similar similar situations. They wished that they didn't work as much. They wished that they did not deprioritize, deprioritize relationships. They wished that they didn't take themselves too seriously. And again, we have this programming. I don't know where it came from that we have to like value all the time that we're spent, you know, you know, doing whatever that job and play is some afterthought that you do when the work is done. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first thing is you need to shift that thinking and you're right. You do need to start with a small block, but not all plays created equal. I talked about joy. Um, you know, um, I learned about the compass of joy. Most people, their compass is broken. Um, and so I, uh, Dr. Stuart Brown that's, talks about that's a, a dark plate. thought. <laughs> I know their, their compass is broken. Their, their, their magnetic North is being pulled by someone else, someone else. Yeah. And, and they're going in the wrong direction. But Dr. Stuart Brown said, there's an easy fix for this is take a play history. What are the things that you used to do when you were younger mm. that you could do for hours? And how can you incorporate that into your life? now and this is going to require you to create space for that because by default you're not going to do it let's be honest you've you've created you did the ten thousand hours of not playing <laughs> as an adult so you are a professional non-player uh so you're going to need to create the conditions for play to happen and first and foremost you need to have space for play to happen um and then you know you need to get over yourself and not be guilty about it but once you start to do that you will find that one, you're going to have more energy than you had. You are going to be more clear. You're going to be more focused. For me, that original sort of, you know, kick in the butt was an improv class. Um, mm -hmm. Not all play, like one person's play is another person's torture. Um, and so improv may not be your jam, but maybe it's like it's uh, fiction books and you have a stack of books that you wanted to read that you haven't, maybe you carve out 10, 10 minutes, read that. How do you feel afterwards? I treat it like a meditative experience, like checking mm. in, all right, how am I feeling? All right, I'm about to jump into play. I know it sounds very unplayfulness, like I'm, I'm like treating this like a freaking doctor, but it will help recondition yourself afterwards. Like, wow, this actually felt good because we have a negativity bias. We will remember all the things that made us feel crappy and we mm. store it in our, in our uh, DVR called our brain and we bring it back anytime we need to feel shame about ourselves. But those happy moments are hard to come by. So you need to be intentional about saying, wow, I actually took 10 minutes for myself. I read this book. I actually feel pretty good. Yeah. Check. Let me get back into work. Yeah. And you're right. It makes it sound so lame having to uh, schedule play, but you have to. I mean, just like in relationships, I, I tell all couples, I ask all couples, when is your next vacation scheduled? 
You've got to have something on the calendar that you are looking forward to. Otherwise, you never will. There will always be a reason not to go, not to book it, not to whatever, right? Like, but like get a vacation on the calendar right now. And, 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 you know, it's okay if it's six months from now. It's just give yourselves things to always look forward to. Break the monotony <laughs> of life. And, and, and so, yes, scheduling some of these things throughout the week is really important. You know, I'm going through a little bit of this right now, actually, Gary, to, to open up. Uh, you know, in New York, I had my improv classes and I had my improv uh, team and we had shows every single Saturday night at the People's Improv Theater. We perform. We were in the nine o'clock slot for like five years in a row. And and it was really beautiful because I had somewhere to be that I knew I was going to have fun with friends and it was just going to be really awesome. And uh, I no longer have that in my new town. Right. I no longer have uh friends, quite honestly, right? Like I have some, but they kind of come and go and they have different motivations than I do. And I think they like me when I'm around, but they don't necessarily think about me when I'm not. And just because making new friends as an adult is weird. Um, and like, how do you convince someone to care about you when you're not around? Right. And it's awkward. And so I now I'm at a place in my life where I teach people to get hobbies because I talk a lot about work-life balance in some of my talks that I do. Um, but I'm in the middle of a place where it's like, oh, shoot, I need something. And so, like, what am I going to do? So now the world's coming back open. I think I will also, you know, drift back into an improv community here in the Twin Cities and or, uh, you know, I don't know what it's going to be. Like, you know, maybe it's like, all right, well, do I find a photography club or do I find, you know, I, I enjoy playing golf and or whatever it is. But, like, I got to find something because what I have been doing and I can blame a decent amount of it on COVID, but not 100 percent is what I have been doing is just kind of plowing along. Right. And then all of a sudden waking up one day and be like, oh, shoot, I'm lonely. Right. Like, let me name what I'm feeling right now. Like, I am lonely. I don't have a thing to go do or a person to go do a thing with. And yes, I have my wife and she is incredible and I love her. But you need more. Community is not just family. Community is bigger than that. It is broader than that. Um, and so uh, so, I mean, that's currently where I am is that. I need to find a sense of play. And now that it's finally warmed up in Minnesota, I mean, yes, it was 35 last night, but it's 60 now, Gary, come on. We're not savages. Um, but, uh, but still, uh, right. Like now that it's finally warmed up, a lot of the excuses are going away, fully vaccinated. Some of those excuses are going away. And now it's like, all right, bro, Let's go, right? Like your, your time has come. Are you going to step in? Are you going to find play? Are you going to find joy? Are you going to find balance? Um, or are you going to, you know, stay in your pattern and feel bad for yourself? Choice is yours. Choice is mine, Gary. Hey, thanks so much for making me feel uncomfortable. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, no, <laughs> no, Gary, the work that you do is so important. And play is an idea that is getting more and more love. Right. And I think we see that even even when like something like Googleplex was built, right, like that, that all of a sudden our workspaces look a little bit differently. And there's we're allowed to have a foosball table. We can have a, a tap with the local beer in the in the whatever. Right. Like some of those kinds of things are, are very are very nice. A sense of play. I think people are recognizing that it needs to happen, but uh, it has to be something that you create. Um, it's not just something that like, well, our workspace gave us a ping pong table, so I guess we play, right? Like, no, you still, you need to make the decision to push that meeting back or to schedule in that time for play. 
Um, and uh, I, I just, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, Gary, and, and the impact that you've had in my time right now. You know, as we start to, as we start to wrap up, you know, I'm wondering, Gary, what, um, you know, what are some final thoughts that you have on individuals who are looking to incorporate more play into their lives? Yes. First and foremost, just acknowledge where you are right now. Um, we are coming through a global pandemic. The last 15, 16 months have been horrific. Mm -hmm. um, and it may have, you know, sort of disrupted everything. And so, you know, with that, like I see you um, and you may not be able to do the things that once brought you joy. Uh, but as you mentioned, James, you know, that is not an excuse. Um, joy is a necessity um, and joy is our given right. It's not something you have to work for. Um, so mm -hmm. just, you know, realize that you need joy because we need you and you can only go as hard as you allow yourself to recover. Um, that's, you know, think about any sort of professional athlete, you know, that, um, you know, they can't be their best if they don't have enough time to sort of rejuvenate and get back on the on the court, you know. Um, and so this is where um, I like you to think of it in three areas. Um, there are micro, meso and macro uh, breaks that we need to have in our life. Um, micro breaks are those moments where you allow yourself to step away from your your work to give yourself joy. And that can be, you know, something tiny. Uh, but then we have mezzo, and this is something that we don't talk about a lot. Um, and mezzo is rest, actually making space for rest. I'm not telling you to go sleep eight hours a day. That might not be your jam. But are you creating an environment where you when you can step away to rest, you actually allow yourself to rest? Because I like to say the environment will always win. You can want to play. But if you don't have an environment that is conducive to that, an environment that is always causing you stress, or an environment that doesn't allow you to block out time to for yourself, um, or whatever the case may be, you're not going to do it. So mm -hmm. you need to have, um, you know, the micro, the small, the meso, the big rest, and then the macro, like what you said, James, when was the last time, like you scheduled a vacation, you know, things are opening back up right now. You know, it may not be in the next two months, but maybe six months, something to look forward to. So, you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, play, we're wired for play. Um, I've worked with people in maximum security prisons. These people are in there for life. We did a workshop and they were smiling like little kids. Mm -hmm. They got a brief moment in their day where they can just step away from whatever is going on and just be completely present with each other in community doing these games and that helped them so much. It, it started to shift the way that they see life. It started to um, help them, you know, sort of realize that, oh, you know, there are bigger things other than myself. They started to connect better. And so if they can do it, I know you can do it. Gosh, Gary, punching people right in the heart. Uh, yes, yes, friend. I completely, I completely agree with you. And 
It's just, you got, we just got to shift our focus. We have to recognize what we need, um, right? You can't just eat one type of food your whole life. You gotta, you gotta mix up the diet. You can't just do, uh, you can't walk the same way to work every day. You got to walk a different path sometimes. And uh, my friends, you can't just cut your pancakes in the same way. My, sometimes you got to mix it up and cut triangles instead of square right. it's called a callback gary um and uh <laughs> thank you for calling me out buddy i love it you're right so but still <laughs> no gary i i love this and uh thank you thank you so much for for hanging out and playing with me in the diner right now it's uh, it just I'm, I'm grateful for our uh our newly budding friendship and uh just just awesome to have another awesome conversation with you man thanks so much for coming to the diner today brother my pleasure james thank you so much i really hey. appreciate you yeah, man, I appreciate you as well. Y'all, that was my boy, Gary Ware, kicking it in the diner one last time with y'all. One last time, one first time, one first time with y'all. That's what I meant to say now because I think we'll have him back. But I uh, I love this concept of play. I love the way that Gary talked about it, right? These quotes, uh, guilt is a barrier to play. You can only go as hard as you have time to recover. These are things that I need to think about. And I think there are things that you need to think about as well, my friend. So thank you for hanging out in the diner with Gary and I today. And let's connect, my friends. Diner Talks with James on Instagram. My email is james at jamesgrobo.com. I would love to hear how some of these things are impacting you. And what do you think about them and what you'd like to see different or added to Diner Talks with James, my friends, because we are a work in progress. But until next time, and until we speak again, my friends, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.